This is the uh, Church and State Report, where we talk about the stuff you're not allowed to talk about at church. Uh, this is a apologetics.com broadcast where we are challenging believers to think and thinkers to believe. I am your host, Logan Zapiri, along with our guest co-host, Tony Costello. Thank you for joining us this evening. Good morning. <laughs> well, evening or morning? Morning. <laughs> it is my we evening. we got to figure this one out. <laughs> yes. He's Every standing- time I come here, I just, I don't know. You don't know which, which way. You, you were getting sleepy on the way here. <laughs> the uh, music always pumps me up. <laughs> yeah. He's standing in for our, uh, our normal co-host, Ben Wagner. He's in D.C. at the moment. He said uh, 3 a.m. was a little too too early for him. So, uh, Dropping the ball, Ben. Yeah, exactly. exactly. We'll let him know that. Um, tonight's topic, though, is the question, why do we hate our bodies? And there was two motivations for this question. The first one was my reading of Yukio Mishima. Uh, it was recommended to me by a friend. Uh, he's a uh, Japanese philosopher born into a samurai family, 1925 to 1968. Uh, he emphasizes a lot on the duality of the mind and body, that we have sort of uh, lost the language or logic of the mm-hmm. body and the way in which it functions and how it contributes to our interaction with reality. And instead, he accuses us of, in his uh, in his case in 1968, the modern world, uh, preferring our minds over our body, the uh, the basic reality of, of the world. And today we can see that in our tech and our augmented reality. And, and in, in his case, even he, he accused the uh, pursuing the academic life and uh, even even denigrating trade schools you'll see in, in the media and our preferences for colleges. But the second um, motivation was was sort of our peak social experiment that we're kind of running right now in transgenderism in which we're sort of giving the mind not only to its imaginations but also through medical control um, the ability to sort of transform our bodies into whatever we we wish them to be and so tony i do not, want to s- not really transform them <laughs> well at the genetic level yeah right yeah. we're not getting all the way there we're, we're still just you know changing our cloak so to speak imagine that we're transforming them yeah, yeah. and so well let's begin i want to begin with our first question though is like do we hate our bodies this is this the root of, of all of these sorts of prefer preferring the mind over the body well you know it's interesting that the book you read he was writing in the in the 60s uh, which you know now i think we're seeing a lot of books come out by uh, Christians uh, about how we have to recapture sort of a theology of the body. Um, I know Nancy Piercy has come out with a book recently called Love Thy Body. And unfortunately, it may seem a little late, a little reactionary at this point, as you said, given that we're going through this massive self-imposed social experiment of enabling all the way down to you know, children, preteens to do things uh, to their bodies that I mean, I'd say I'll make the analogy that we're Nazi doctors were basically doing to Jewish bodies in the Holocaust. And people may think that's extreme, uh, but I think it's accurate. I think it's an accurate analogy. I mean, we're talking about an experiment uh, where young people are chopping up, chopping up, chopping off parts of very healthy bodies. Um, and at face value, if we took it at face value with all, without all the uh, uh, supposed theory behind it, um, that is all smoke and mirrors anyways, um, people would be like, what are these people doing? I mean, this is just, this is insane. Uh, the level, it, it's clearly a form of, or it seems to be a form of self-hatred. Yeah. Right? Uh, the mind waging war. Uh, against the body. Yeah, and because and, and you mentioned the, the chopping up and the, or, or chopping off. Or chopping off or, or trying to, you know, through some kind of cosmetic surgery. Yeah, it could even be chemical, right? Yeah. These chemical, um, you know, treatments that we're going right. through. Because this would be in, and we say this, is this, you know, perhaps is just rooted in the hate of the body. Yeah. Because this would be very different than those individuals who seeing their body would say, we can make this better. I'm going to go lift weights or I'm going to eat healthier because my body is frail or falling apart or can't, can't live off of a diet of McDonald's and Weir Schnitzel. Yeah. This isn't trying to, um, enhance, right. Um, 
maybe latent latent capacities that the body has, right? To bring mm-hmm. them out in a certain way, you know, increase your muscle strength through exercise or something like this. Yeah. This is this is a sort of I you know a a, a disgust or a disregard for what is a healthy body by and large and just saying, you know, I want something totally different. Yeah. Um, so now one, one, I mean, there's a couple and it's not, it's look, it's, it's not just the transgender phenomenon. Um, you know, we see this in other areas where even now, like I was telling you at dinner earlier, you know, we think when like, uh, uh, George Bush, George W. Bush was elected president, and I think it was in his first term, he uh, selected Arnold Schwarzenegger to <laughs> yeah. be on a special counsel for health and fitness. And Schwarzenegger was out there in front of the White House with all these people in spandex, you know, hundreds of people yeah. working out. And there was a there was a you know real push that you know we had a we had a serious problem with obesity in the culture. Mm-hmm. This is a health issue. Um, there's also an aesthetic component there that we can get into. And now what we're seeing too is sort of a disregard for even health, what what would be considered normal health standards with regards to our body um, that we should sort of get rid of, um, you know, just standards of fitness even. Um, yeah, I mean, our current, current uh, leader of the health department, uh, his name has, or her name has escaped my mind. Levine is, yes. is his last name. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a it's a the I guess very different than Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Is this? Yeah, right. Well, he doesn't <laughs> look very fit uh, either. But but so I mean, you know, so it's interesting that uh, you know the author you read what was this Mish, Mish, Mishima, Mishima yeah. you know is already talking in the '60s about how we are getting sort of distanced or. Um, alienated from our own bodies right um and what i mean and this is what i found so fascinating so right you know, my background in philosophy i've studied a lot of these philosophical arguments for the body like you know you should take care of it he even uses the example uh yukio uses the example of like the body being like an orchard and you can choose to tend it or you can choose to let it grow over with weeds and, and sort of fall apart. I think most people would agree with that. But he takes it to the next step. And this is where I'm, I'm, I'm not familiar with the Christian view on this, because obviously Yukio is not coming from a Christian perspective. Right. But he says that there seems to be like a logic and a language of the body. And what he's trying to get at is that we seem to have when we want to communicate, for example. So he opens up with this idea of when we communicate, we use words and words are abstractions, right? They're, they're not, you're not, you know, if I talk about a balloon, I'm not literally sending a balloon to you. I, I use the balloon because that's what we have in our office. But the body though, doesn't communicate that way through words. It communicates through action. It communicates yeah. through um, muscles or organs, mm. or it comes into contact with, you know, objects. In his case, he, he did a lot of kendo and being a kendo yeah. master. So he wants to say that we actually have forgotten that it's not just merely that our body is like something we take care of, but like there's an opposing like living entity that has its own desires and wants and its forms of communication. And we sort of cut all of that off and now the body's just a tool. Yeah, yeah, that's that's an interesting point. I mean, we think of like all of the... Uh, all of the laws uh, in the Old Testament and how much of them are really about how we operate our bodies, how our bodies uh, are supposed to be um, treated. Um, I mean, so many things relate. I mean, the, the Bible is not a, a, a philosophy book. It's not a book of abstract philosophy. And of course, ul- the ultimate embodiment comes in Christ himself, right? The embodied incarnate God. So to neglect um, our bodies is certain. First and foremost, it's a rejection of one aspect of the image of God, right? And man, I mean, we're not just souls. Although we would say that, in a certain sense, the soul is primary, right? There is a certain sense where the soul is primary, but uh, that doesn't mean that the body is is in any way negligible. Um, I think to disregard our bodies and how we care and 
treat, uh, treat them would be to sort of almost, you know, be rather flippant with the idea of the uh, theology of the incarnation, right? Um, and we're going to, and we are going to get uh, glorified bodies. I mean, that is a fundamental doctrine of the church of is that, you know, we don't just uh, float off into some platonic realm yeah. as disembodied <laughs> spirits, you know, but that there's going to be a general resurrection and glorified bodies and the entire creation is going to be remade. Um, and that, that seems to have an embodied and physical reality that we're looking forward to. So, I mean, it's deeply theological here. I think um, what he's probably pointing out there then too is, um, and, you know, in the 60s, when you really st start to see the rise of mass media and technology, um, and this is also something that I think even, you know, say Marx pointed out, um, this alienation of man from his, from his labor, right, where technology is also, I think, plays a big part in us getting sort of disassociated from our embodied life as we, you know, sit around more on staring at screens, um, you know, looking at virtual realities. Uh, also created imagery, I think, is a big part of this. Instead of being out, you know, in nature, you know, tilling the yeah. soil, you know, for 12 hours a day, watching the sun rise or actually go down uh, and experiencing creation directly, we have a, a virtual, we have sort of have a medium through which many, much of our experiences are occurring. And um, we start to become more and more mental creatures. And one of the uh, theologians that I was reading, uh, he's an English theologian by the name of Graham Ward, I think he makes a good point too, as technology kind of makes sort of Gnostics of us all, where, you know, we've, we've lost touch with how our bodies are supposed to function, how they would function naturally in nature, right? When we then decide to get up and do something with our bodies, we look to sort of maximize the, the bodily experience, mm -hmm. right? And I think this plays into the sexualization of our culture. We're, you know, we're becoming so and so, de so uh, detached from our bodies through technology that then when, when we go and try and have a bodily experience, it has to be exaggerated. It has to be yeah. heightened, yeah. you know? And obviously one of the most exaggerated and heightened bodily experiences we can have, if not the most, is to engage in some kind of uh, sexual pursuit, right? Yeah. Something sensual. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I think that all plays a part. And of course, this this is all a problem when it comes to us as Christians, especially dealing with the flesh, right? The sins yeah. of the flesh. You know, if we're not having more natural bodily experiences, and then we feel the body has to become sort of like a sensorium of pleasure or something <laughs> right. when we actually do use it. You can see how this sets up for all kinds of, uh, you know, sinful behavior. Right? Yeah. Well, and I think there's something, there's a couple of distinctions I think that are important to make because I think what you're saying is, is actually very profound, but I think might, might be confused with something else that's very, very close to it. And that's what we're saying, you know, when you talk about sitting on the couch, listening to mass media, um, engaging in technological activities, and then you say, go and looking at the sun. It's funny, Yukio uses the sun very often in his book, Sun and Steel, as an example of, it, of sort of the bodily relation to the sun. And it is a common mm -hmm. example. But what we're not saying is, like maybe your dad or maybe your grandfather said, just get off the couch and go out in the world and do stuff. There, what we're actually saying is, is look at the, when you're consuming mass media, like what are you consuming? You're consuming things that are stimulating your mind, maybe for you know, better or for worse, right? It, it's a mental activity. When you engage in Facebook posts, it's primarily a mental activity. You're engaging in words, you're engaging in images, you're engaging in I ideas. If it's a TikTok video, all this is very mentally stimulating, stimulating, but it's all being communicated through the mind. When we're talking about physical experiences, and maybe may you can clarify this if this is not what you're referring to, but Yukio is going to go out and say, you should do things that are not expressible through the mind, so to speak. When you go and do a, phys a sport, a physical activity, ride a bike, yeah. right? Try to explain the, the bodily exercise of riding a bike through an academic or a, a intellectual medium. Right. And, you'll, and you'll find is you'll hit this point where uh, Yuki will get at is there are things that can't be expressed 
through words, but can only be expressed through muscles and action. Yeah. Well, there's there's uh, what we might call experiential knowledge. So yeah. there's a whole realm of knowledge that we're 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 losing in a sense. Yeah, because we're not doing things with our bodies, uh, and and also it's not just that, but then we lose we, we're we're losing um, the sense of. Uh, even if we wanted to do things with our bodies, uh, what are the right things to do? Yeah. Right? Because if we don't have a standard uh, to shoot for, right, something that would uh, guide us in how to use the, we might say, I, I, I need, there's something I'm missing. We might get a sense of this um, loss of being in contact, connection with my body. But then we've we've lost any sense of okay, I know I need to be uh, in more in touch with my body, but but how, and what should I do? What kind of activities are good for the body, and which ones are not? And one of the things that came up in our previous conversation this was, um, you know, if you you take like standards of bodily health or maybe even bodily beauty, right? Now, if if your only motivation, for example, to care for your body is a social convention, just something that is contingent upon the time and the place you live, mm-hmm. um, and that's likely it's going to change, right? You may not, I mean, you may not, you may care for your body in a certain, based on that convention. Now, that convention could be totally screwed up and it could yeah. wind, wind up hurting you. Um, but you could, you could also say, you know what, but especially in an individualistic society, which we have, you could say, well, you know what, why should I bother with this social convention? It's very, you know, it's hard to sort of, uh, live up to this. It might be easier just to try and change the convention mm-hmm. you know, instead of care for my body to meet that standard, Yeah. especially if I don't think it's a transcendent. But now if you... If you recognize that there's a transcendent standard, a, way, a, a transcendent design, and a transcendent way for us to live as embodied creatures that you cannot change because it's from God, yeah. it's from the creator of the body. Well, then, and if you know that and you know you can't change that standard, well, then you're going to be properly motivated to care for your body, yeah. both with regards to health and also with regards to an aesthetic component, because we also recognize that not only is God uh, absolute goodness, but God is also absolute beauty, right? These are the transcendentals, the good, the true, the beautiful, right? And if we lose any sense of an unchanging and eternal transcendent standard, uh, another way to put this that we talked about was if we lose any sense of the sacred, in our culture to include the sacredness of our, our, our bodies, then what would motivate me to really take care of it in the right way? If it's just yeah. sort of another profane thing. Yeah. And well, I think, so this, I think this all plays into this problem of, and then you, everything's that is going on in the mind. And you said all the images that come in our mind. Yeah. Well, and that's what we were you know, saying. Like when we engage in social conventions, I mean, yeah. the construction of a social convention is naturally intellectual. Yes. Right. And so this would be one of the pushbacks is like, well, you're still not actually engaging the body. You're engaging just the mind. And there's two routes you can do that. You can, even if the social convention is wrong, one way you can determine that is through bodily experience. But, but some people will opt to the intellectualizing. Oh, we'll just, we'll just create a new social convention and we'll justify that. So they haven't actually gotten out of their sort of like intellectualizing framework in which that's just going to dominate the body. But this goes into the question about like a standard for like health, for example, right? And, and this is just a classical like Aristotelian example, like you know, how do you know too much is too much, you know, for you know if it's food or if it's water or if it's exercise. Well, part of that's going to be determined by your body, like you know, you look on, look on like any uh, you know, I have a little energy drink here, I haven't opened it yet, but on the back it'll say based on like a two thousand calorie diet. But there's a little asterisk, and you read it and goes, well, that's based on the daily average. And you have to consult like multiple things about like what is your blood like, and what is your health like, and what is your body like. You know, there's all these can like subjective, so to speak, um, conditions, but it's dependent on the individual, 
right body, the actual body. Yeah. What body are you working with? A two thousand calorie diet might be bad for a particular kind of body, right? Yeah. yeah. So. But then this goes into the question of sacredness, and this is what I was talking to you about over dinner as well. Is this the sacred is like fundamentally arbitrary in the sense that it it is sacred, right? It's like you know uh, Chesterton talks about you know the sacred well is, is is where you begin, and then the build the, the city built up around, so to speak. The body is kind of arbitrary. You're just given a body, right? It wasn't like yeah, a rational justification. In a sense, right? And I yeah. said this is you know like like a Mario Kart race. Yeah. I chose this go kart because I thought it was cool. I thought <laughs> yeah. it was fast. No, no, no. You just sort of like become aware one day and you're like, this is my body. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In the same way, like, and maybe, and this is where I, I brought the transgender question is, is like, we've lost the ability that there's a level of arbitrariness in the world and it is okay. And it is justifiable as just being arbitrary. Right. Well, and then, and then what, what, what that forces us to do is have to accept reality, uh, which we don't want we don't want to accept uh, the things we want to control everything, right? And of course, and again, this is where the technology piece is always tangential to this because we the, the technology we develop gives us a semblance that we can or eventually will be able to control everything, every aspect of life and nature. And this is what obviously gets us into horrible, you know, horrible, um, you know, tragedies, right? Is Is trying to... I mean, tech, look, there's a there's a long history of, you know, I mean, go back to early chapters of Genesis, you know, and Tubal Cain, the first metal worker and the builder of the first city. And he names it Enoch, I believe, after his grandson. And, um, you know, it's in the cities and in the pursuit of technology. Um, you know, this is something that Tolkien picks up on in Lord of the Rings, you know where the it's always the dark forces that are using technology because technology is the means that we as human beings start trying to use in order to give us a sense of security that has been lost after the fall. When we don't find our security in God and the way he's made us, right? Even, even though there's sin in the world and things are not yet glorified, but when we lose the sense of God as the one who ultimately can and will redeem us and bring everything back into order, then we grasp for technology. Now, technology, on the one hand, is a great thing because it's a communicable attribute for men to be creative like their creator, right? That is an attribute that's communicated we share with God, unlike his aseity or something, which we don't. So we want to be creative, but at the same time, because of sin, we pursue technology throughout human history, almost frantically, in the hopes that through technology, we'll be able to control everything in life and fix ourselves, right? So, um, I mean, there's always been... uh, Fix ourselves or even, not even fix ourselves, fix everything else, so to speak. We'll fix everything else, we'll be fine. We'll fix everything else to our liking, so to speak. Well, I'd say fix reality, and we're part of that, Yeah. right? So, um, so I kind of went off on a tangent there, but part of this is instead of looking out at the world and accepting it, it's the old, the ancient, the pre-modern idea was that you look at the world, you see the conventions in nature Mm -hmm. that have been placed there by the creator and you try and align your soul and your totally embodied life with uh, the created order, right? Instead, get to the modern era and it's impose the individual will onto try try and adapt or, or conform nature to the to the will yeah. of the individual or corporately the society. Yeah. And this always ends in something like a massive just bloodbath. You know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it always ends in huge uh, human tragedy with a lot of carnage. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, and that's what I think. Right, because the, the, the natural impulse is to say, well, like conforming nature some ways to our image is great. It's nice to have a farm. It's nice to have, you know, building our dams and our rivers and, you know, building the, the things that have made society more, or like, I guess, nature more livable. Yeah. But then there is that franticness that comes about, which is sort of like we're going to replace all of the troubles of nature, so to speak, right? Yeah. The, the sort of bl- the blessings of struggle. 
becomes sort of cursed. This is, goes back to the sacredness. Like, yeah. like, like for example, children are considered sacred, but now they're turning into like problems that tech needs to solve. Yeah. And this could be any normal, any range of things. This could be the bodily mutilation. This could be the entertainment. This could be, you know, how do we fix children so they're not a problem? Do we give them medication so they can sit in school all day? Like, they're yeah. becoming more and more a problem to the things that we want to see in society. Yeah. Yeah, I think we had to say uh, a little bit here after the break about family and children. Because I think also that uh, what, what we're seeing happening is also a, a result of the breakdown in family structures. Right? Yeah. Um, and because everything that could be learned uh, in a healthy and re responsible way is primarily going to be learned in a family and you know in a, in a home yeah and when when that structure of how how we learn to even be embodied creatures breaks down um then it's no wonder that we're having so many uh problems yeah okay so when we get back from our break family and children Evening, good morning. We're gonna that stick woke with me both. up again. <laughs> We're sticking with both. Almost falling asleep <laughs> again. This is the church and state report. Because I often almost fall asleep when I hear myself talk. Uh, <laughs> put yourself asleep. I've done that once to a friend where I was talking and then fell asleep, and so I didn't <laughs> nice. hear the rebuttal to my argument. <laughs> he did let me sleep till the morning, though, so he was at least kind with that. Um, this is an apologetics.com broadcast where we are challenging believers to think and thinkers to believe. If you just joined us, I am your host, Logan Zapiri, joined with our guest co-host, Tony Costello. Um, and we're talking about the question, why do we hate our bodies? And we talked about a ton of topics on the first part of the show uh, regarding transgenderism, our bodily health, um, the theology of why do we take care of our bodies? Is there a language of our bodies? Is there things that the body contributes to our experience and our knowledge that can't be found in the mind? And we've sort of come down to now talking about family and children in the church. But before we begin, I want to just read this quote from uh, Yukio Mishima. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm probably not. But the quote reads uh, this. Men have now forgotten the profound hidden struggle between consciousness and the body that exists in courage and physical courage in particular. To embrace suffering is the constant role of physical courage. Nice. <laughs> That's from a samurai culture. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, one thing I, you know, I was reading a book called Family and Civilization. It was written in 1947 by... Harvard sociologist Carl Zimmerman was his name. And, you know, one thing that he points out over and over again is at the end of the day where, where just most of the, all of the important things of human life and human development occur is still at the end of the day in, in a family, right? I mean, it's just, it's an obvious thing. You know, we don't necessarily even state it that often explicitly because it's so obvious but you know when you when when we look back at the 19th century especially the 19th century marxist marx and and uh um trotsky uh or i'm sorry engels himself and when you read about their views of the family the whole goal um a long intellectual tradition starting in the 19th century probably going back before that is to dismantle the family I mean, it's, there's been an explicit attack on the family for at least two, you know, 150 years. Well, you can go back even earlier to Godwin and, and other, the English progressives. Um, and uh, so I think one of the reasons we're seeing, all, again, hatred of the body, or, or, or minimally it's like, even if it's not explicit hatred in somebody's mind, a, a, just a total confu a confusion, again, about what yeah. our bodies are even for. I mean, I think we're at that point. We don't even know what they're really for anymore. 
Yeah. You know, and, and where would, I mean, like anything else about life, where are you going to learn about how to take care of your body, how it should be used? What are proper boundaries between bodies, different yeah. bodies? And that all has to occur or occurs best within a family structure of a mother and father and uh, as Zimmer would point out in 47, preferably many children, many siblings, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so the breakdown of the family, and I think it also, I mean, this is speculative. I wouldn't want anybody to make a doctrine out of it, but, you know, we're bemoaning the loss of masculinity in the culture um, and maybe in femininity as well. We feel that we've become a more effeminate society, but maybe it's not really an, an effeminate society. Maybe it's something totally different because we don't even know what it means to, for a woman to be a woman anymore, right? Yeah. What is a woman? Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, there, and this was something that uh, I know Carl, Carl Truman put, um, pointed out in his book, you know, when, when, when you get disconnected from the things that men would at least be better at doing on average bodily, you know, going out and working the fields. What I mean, I'm going to yeah. use the farming analogy and over and over, it could be other things. Yeah. But on average, Combat. I worked on a traditional yeah. farm in Germany for uh, uh, a couple, several months. On average, you know, the man would be out doing the, the heavier labor because the, yeah. the, the male body, on, on average, Right, we understand that there are, you know, strong female bodies and everything, but on average, this would be the man's work because the body is the male body is more suited for that, you know, and then the female body uh, more suited for uh, the bearing uh, and raising of children. Um, but you know, if we, as we get further and further away from using our bodies in those typical sort of roles that reinforce the male or the female identity. Yeah. Well, what what would assume is that we lose a sense of what those identities are. So it's not the whole story, but not doing certain kinds of activities. Now, if you if you have less and less women have uh, having uh, less and less children, right? Then there's something about not being a mother, not using your body in a motherly way, which is going to entail suffering. Oh, I mean, yeah more than the male body with regards to children. Mm -hmm. Although men have to take care of their children and, and well, and that could be wrestling with your boys on the carpet, which is taking its toll on my body, <laughs> you know, uh, staying up with them all night long when they're sick, not getting yeah. the sleep that you, I mean, all these different kinds of emotional and psychological and the uh, experiences of difficulty yeah. Uh, that 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 go along in family life, whether it's between the husband and the wife, and just getting to learn how to adapt to each other over time, or raising children. Those are all, well, they're emotional and psychological difficulties. There, they're all embodied in experiences. Your body feels that, and I think yeah. that goes right to his point. What develops then, just in in embodied family life of raising children is a form of courage. It's a type yeah. of, cause courage, part of courage is endurance, endurance through pain. And that includes physical pain. Yeah. And every parent knows you experience physical pain when you're raising children Yeah. because you get tired, you get sore, you know, you don't get enough sleep and so on and so forth. You skip meals or you just yeah. eat whatever the kids didn't eat, you know? Um, so, we're, I think we're losing that. You know, yeah. we, we've lost a lot of that. Um, yeah. yeah, well, yeah. Chesterton put, yeah, I'm going to quote Chesterton. You know, this is, this is my, my, my stick. But uh, Chesterton said, you know, if you, if you wanted to, like, develop a human person, you would say the best circumstance to do this would, would be to put him with a random assortment of human beings and then try to get him to get along with those people people that would show you the kind of person you were and his argument is that's exactly what happens in the family you're assigned yeah. a random assortment fragment of human society and you're sort of forced to get along with them right and 
that developed through the human experiences. So from the parenting side, they're suffering. From the child side, they're suffering. Maybe there's misunderstandings of what amounts to suffering, you know, and what, you know, but that's built over time as you bump into these people on the daily and you have to, you know, tug a war on, you know, moral values and duties and these right. sorts of conversations, you know. And we go to bed at 8 o'clock. Well, why not 8.15, right? So you're going to have all these, you know, fights and that struggle and the learning to get along and knowing what boundaries, the psychological development. Like, all of that sort of suffering, quote unquote, that's very physical and experiential, yeah. is trying to be fixed with our mind. Like, oh, like if we just have these con- intellectualized conversations or if we introduce tech to just sort of like, you know, we take our kid from point A to point B and at the end they just come out to be the people we thought they should always be. But what we're seeing is this is in fact not the case and we're seeing an, an increase of just like kids freaking out and not – or even parents – not being able to handle it. And this is what we saw with like COVID was a perfect example where like people were forced to be with each other again yeah. and it destroyed a ton of families because they couldn't, they just couldn't live with each other anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or, and, 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 you know, maybe even had some positive, if it may, maybe for some families, it was a awakening again that, Hey, we should do this more often. Yeah. You know, I think you're right. I mean, look, I don't think children when they're young, do not see how their parents struggle and suffer. They don't get it. They don't no. see that you're sacrificing for them. Um, but if they, you know, as they grow up though, you know, and assuming that, you know, they've been raised well, um, I don't think anybody really feels loved in any significant way unless they've seen that somebody else has sacrificed something for them. Right. I mean, yeah. it's just when, you know, a, you know, a, a tr- somebody who truly loves you or uh, whether it's a friend or family member is going to sacrifice. You're going to see that the, 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 the sacrifice they make for you, that that's the expression of uh, that. That's how you know that yeah. they really care for you, that they've given something up that they otherwise could have had. Yeah. You know, um, so at some point when the children get older and they recognize how much mom and dad have sacrificed then they'll they'll, you know they'll know they feel now there's other ways i mean as little kids feel love just through you know physical comfort you know you know and and giving them a gift there's all kinds of ways to do this but they won't know that they're really loved as an adult if they didn't see that mom and dad sacrificed something yeah to raise me yeah. You know, that matters. Yeah. And of course that that's supposed to mirror the the obvious and ultimate sacrifice of, of Christ for 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 God's children, right? Um so yeah, and and so I think I mean now you know, and it this is so hard to even think about. Now you have it's not even that, you have the adults, the parents enabling the children to basically destroy themselves. Yeah. Um so yeah. it's it's just well it's just the avoidance so it's the total avoidance of suffering it, i mean you're yeah. basically ha- you know like preventing children from struggling okay so i just taught through it's chap chapter um three in problem of pain on divine mm-hmm. goodness and he gives these four analogies and you know he makes it crystal clear you know that kindness is not love kindness is just giving giving it's an aspect of love but if you're merely kind you only want to see the other person whether it's a child or a spouse not suffer mm-hmm. but that's not sufficient you want no, to see the child because you know it's just so so long as the person's happy i don't care and he goes gets the edits well well my my, my son's a you know a pathological liar cheats on his taxes you know, is a serial adulterer, but as long as he's happy, yeah. you know, then right, I'm right. fine with that because I want to be that sort of a mere kindness, but love obviously gets in there and wants to see the person transformed into a true self, right? Into a, a, a full, you know, fully actualized, uh, person, a good yeah. person. Right. And that's going to take, uh, some kind of process of suffering that, to go through. Yeah. Um, so, and presumably, yeah. I mean, this, and I think this is very important that parents want their children to grow up to be good people. And the, the, the like 
imminent question or like at least the obvious question is, well, what is it like? What is it like to be a good person? How does someone or what does someone endure to become a good person? Presumably that kind of experiential knowledge is coming from the, the parents. And now we live in a world in which the children get to tell the parents, yeah, I'm suffering. Here's what I'm going to do. And by and large, if the parents don't go along with it, or they're being encouraged to go along with it, and if they don't, we're getting to a point where now teachers are going to call CPS, yeah. the and the state, state the is state going to enforce and whenever the parents there's a to reverse. In the family, the state will fill the role. Yes, the the state will always fill the role, the authoritative role, whenever it's whenever it's not uh, functional in the family. Yes, and um, and the state is not. Right, it's operating not from physical knowledge. It's a bureau, it's a bureaucratic kind of knowledge, it's an intellectual it's kind of. It's impersonal. It's, it's very impersonal. impersonal. And so this is what we're getting. Deck is like we're we're like falling away from bodily the, the the bodily grind, I guess, the bodily experience, and trying to replace it even in practical ways with bureaucratic, sort of, technical help. Even if yeah. it's backed by and the and this power is of the why. <sighs> I don't want to sound, but this is why if the church is not there to provide guidance and a, a true theology and applied theology of family, marriage, and a theology of the body, you know, we say the Roman Catholics have maybe done a little bit better on this in the sense of theology. I don't know how it's working out in ap application wise. It doesn't seem to be. <laughs> much different in the Roman Catholic tradition than in evangelical Protestantism right now. But um, if the church does not provide a buffer between the family and the state, then the state's going to take over the family and the state's yeah. going to run. The state is going to, then you basically do have to be honest. That's kind of the Marxist utopia is that we're, you know, that it, we are, we are just one, we're, we're a state, right? Yeah. You got to, you got to eliminate all of these other pre-political social structures, church and family, Yeah, eliminate them so that we can have the political utopia Yeah, where, you know, well, and, the pre-political structures is very much grounded in reality, like a yeah. church family and part of it, if it's functioning well, this is a conversation I had actually with a couple of associate pastors. Cause I think, you know, they didn't get the church family aspect. I said, but there's going to be family fighting, so to speak. This person's having rumors against this person, you know, this person, you know, hit that person. Like, you know, like you're not, hopefully not into the realm of like total, like, un, you know, unadulterated abuse, but this idea of like, there's going to be family conflict if you're going to run it like a family. And it's through that grind that people yeah. mature in their theology, right? The, the idea of like, like, what is the limit of an idea, right? So, you know, right. And this, Yukio gets in this, like the, the limits of an idea in some capacity is going to be constrained by the bodily experience, right? Like, like there's always a, a vision of how the family should operate, right? Maybe, maybe in a traditional family, you know, the, yeah. the, the wife has, you know, done the stuff with the children and the children are happy and doing their homework and the dad comes home and the dinner is ready. But like that never happens. Like there is an idea and that idea is very much constrained by, well, we have this problem and that problem and the car doesn't work and the, you know, we have to pay for these. Like there's like a physical reality that's constantly constraining sort of the utopian vision. Right. Yes. But once the state comes in and then all the constraints are being hindered by like like a like a bureaucratic veil, then there's like no limits to the like utopian vision until like you have total collapse and then nature, so to speak, has its last at bat and just sort of demolishes the utopian vision from start to finish in sort of one fell swoop. Yeah. Well, um yeah, so I mean I'd say that most of if, – if, if we were going to come up with a very concrete apologetic, what can you do that is not just writing a book of theory or coming up with arguments to try and reverse the trend of culture, uh, which includes currently a sort of a maniacal and just malevolent and confused hatred of our bodies, which is which is a hatred of ourselves at the end of the day, since we're embodied souls and made in the image and likeness of God. It's a form of hatred. of It's a hatred of God, 
right? Yeah. It's a hatred of his of his the pinnacle of his creation. If you hate yourself, um, well, I mean, one I, of the things that say is one of the ways is you've got we have to get back to uh, building up strong families, um, having one virgin man and one virgin woman having uh, a marital union until they die and bearing and raising multiple children. Yeah. And this is how you uh, not only honor God and his plan and the proper uh, restraints um, on human, uh, uh, on human life, but this is also how you build up a nation. Uh, a healthy yeah. and creative and constructive uh, society, and if you don't have that, um, then you are you're in you're in collapse, you're you're in civilizational collapse. Yeah, and we I mean we've been in there probably for about sixty or seventy years at this point. Yeah, no, it is incredible. Collapse doesn't happen immediately, but it it does. Uh, Something like, it happens slowly. Then, how's the phrase goes? Like it's slowly, but then all at once, or something like that. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, and I think you're right. So, yeah, so one concrete example is like, well, I mean, asking, you know, I, I, I think there's there's this sort of franticness of basic human, you know, just average human beings wanting meaning and value in life, right? If I went to anyone on the street and say, hey, do you want to have a meaningful life? They're going to be like, yes. And if you said, do you think you're having a meaningful life right now? You're going to get some mixed answers. Some people are like, yes. Some are like, uh, I think it's meaningful. It could probably be better. Right? You have yeah. to have answers. But the question I think really comes down to is like asking like, okay, but like, how is your family life? Like, oh, it, it kind of sucks and I really can't do anything to help it. Okay. There's one way in which you can be working on having that meaningful life. Is it actually meaningful? Like building up the basic relationships or even asking the question like, how is your own body? Right? If you can't, have a meaningful existence between your mind and your heart, so to speak, then how could you possibly have a meaningful existence in any other capacity in life? Like, like those are the two most intimate things and something presumably you're care at least carrying yourself. Even if you just have a purely mental existence in which the, the mind is now dominating the body, you still have to carry your body around. And the question is like, but are you like listening to it in a way or like, treating it well and you're like well not really it's like well then like those are the two possessions you've been given at least yeah right and if you can't do it well then then why anything else well yeah and so and i know you kind of said this before in a, maybe slightly a different way but you know that two fundamental sort of components of um you know just our humanness that we've lost really lost in the West is the, is again, what we said, the sense of sacredness to include our own sacredness being made in God's image. But then what comes along with that is any sense of responsibility for that, which is sacred. Because if yeah. you don't, you can say, say if you, if you think, if you don't think there, there anything, anything is sacred, set apart, holy in any way, then you're, again, you're not going to be motivated to really take responsibility for it. Right. There's got yeah. to be, and you know, he would have, he would say this in the book. So there's got to be this, you know, this is why, like, I mean, we, we're, we're talking from a Christian worldview yeah. at the end of the day, there can be, it's gotta be minimally, uh, you need two things, religion, a religious worldview and, and families and families yeah. that are, uh, informed and structured according to that. Uh, religious worldview. Now we're going to say that the Christian worldview gives is the best yeah. way to form and, and well, form you need something that constrains the mind, yeah, and you need something that constrains the body, yeah. And the journey is smashing them together, so to speak. Yeah. And you know, we should. I want to. We should say then for the individual believer, you know, uh, Paul said First Corinthians six nineteen through twenty, you know, tells us specifically why our bodies are so important to us as believers, because he says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? So is uh, you, and then he says, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Lewis in Screwtape Letters um, 
you know, sort of riffs off Paul here in First Corinthians six, where where he has uh, the elder tempter um, screw tape uh, giving advice to I think Wormwood's the younger mm-hmm. the devil, right? Yeah. And says if there's one thing you have to get your patient to do, the patient is the Christian, the Christian man, right? Is get him to think he possesses his own body, that it's yeah. his own thing, and and therefore he can do whatever he wants with it. Yeah. And how often do we hear "my body, my choice"? Now, yeah. I mean that doesn't even work in the abortion debate because it's not the, the person's it's not body. body. But it doesn't but, even work in a Christian but it framework. It doesn't work in any framework. And if it, and and God, I mean, you brought up the point I think earlier, like. Um, whether or not pro-choice pastors should be, if if you find out your pastor was pro-choice, if she he should be fired. And I said, well, I think of course he yeah, should. Obviously, be. obviously he should be, because as a Christian, we have to understand: no, it is not our bodies. These are the bodies that have been given to us by God, by His predetermined yeah. plan, through our parents. Accept that. Yeah. Accept the well, body that through he's our given. parents, yeah. but like you know, you trace it far enough back. Adam and Eve were given their bodies by God. Like, like yeah. it starts off like it is a divine gift right. that we have a body. Like, I think everyone understands the divine gift of their soul. Yeah. You know, for Christians, like, oh yeah, obviously, yeah. Like, our soul comes from God. But like, the divine gift of the body is actually from God. Yes, like that—that's part of the gift. Yeah. So um, that that means that, I mean, again, empowered by the Spirit, uh, because we know as sinful creatures we're not going to treat our bodies the way they should be. We're going to go either to excess or to into some deficit. Yeah, and we're always going to. Different people are going to struggle with different excesses and different deficits. Some of us are going to be we're going to eat too much. And we're going to struggle with being overweight. Others could go the opposite direction. Some of us are going to be using our body, you know, be struggle to, you know, refrain from using our bodies um, sexually, right, in a way that's inappropriate. And, and that's, of course, the, probably the most damaging. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't have a standard mm-hmm. um, to care for our bodies and treat our bodies the right way and move towards that standard in this process of spiritual sanctification that is, but we're embodied spirits. So it's also going to be an embodied sanctification. Yeah. yeah. No, it is bringing the two together. Yeah. And, uh, and I want to end this. I know I opened it with Yukio Mishima. I know he's not a Christian, but I do want to end with, with a quote from him um, at the end of his book, uh, Sun and Steel. He talks about going up in an aircraft, right? Mm-hmm. 1960s uh, and sort of, being shown the, the the Japanese landscape, seeing Mount Fuji in the distance, and kind of contemplating the difference between the mental life and the physical life. And after he has sort of surveyed, the, you know, his, his kind of his philosophy, his ending philosophy, and if you know his life, it, it does end up become very tragic. But he ends with this: he says, "Modern man is almost devoid of the desires of the ancient Greeks to live beautifully and and to die beautifully, yeah, and to recapture the sacred, yes, in society." That's right.